Good day, everyone. This is your host, Dr. Curdy. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the first episode of the GI Startup Podcast, the place where you will learn about innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship in the GI field. In this podcast, you will hear directly from industry leaders, disruptive innovators, and entrepreneurs in this field. Whether you're a practicing gastroenterologist, a GI fellow, an aspiring innovator, or an entrepreneur, please join us to learn about the future of this amazing field. Today's episode is really exciting. Today, we're going to chat with Dr. Brennan Spiegel from Cedar sinai Dr. Spiegel is very well known in the GI community. I believe an introduction is not really needed. However, Dr. Spiegel is professor of medicine at Cedar sinai Hospital. He is a physician, a writer, a leader, and an innovator. Today, we're going to talk to him about two main things. We're going to start out talking about VR technology in healthcare, and then we will move on to chat about AppStats, a device that he made, which uses acoustic sensoring technology and analysis in order to gain valuable information about the GI tract. All right. Welcome, uh, Dr. Spiegel. Um, thank you for joining us um, and uh, hope you were having a good day so far uh, before I uh, took time out of your day. Mm, well, thanks for having me. All right. So preparing for this interview, I feel like we could probably, at least on my end, spend a few hours talking, but uh, we're going to try and make this as brief as possible. So I want to talk about two things in particular, um, and those are going to be your work on VR and its applications in healthcare. Um, and the second thing is going to be AppStats and uh, GI Logic and your experience um, in uh, developing these and uh, moving forward. So let's start talking about VR. So in a nutshell, what are you guys doing at Cedar sinai and what's the technology that you're building and how do you see that affecting our practice in the future as physicians? Yeah, well, like I said, thanks for having me. Um, you know, when most people think of virtual reality, they think of it as a gaming platform. You know, uh, kids may be playing first-person shooter games, getting kind of addicted to technology, spending a lot of time doing unproductive things, that sort of thing. But the reality is that virtual reality is far more than a gaming platform. It was originally developed by the Department of Defense on the military to help train fighter pilots and helicopter pilots to help sort of simulate uh, war environments, for example. And it became clear over time that virtual reality is really a way to uh, provoke the mind, emotionally provoke the mind, and create environments that seem very realistic and vivid. And of course, that can be used for gaming, but if we're creative about it, it can also be used to improve health and well-being, both in gastroenterology and beyond. So, you know, I didn't know much about VR until I first tried it uh, about seven years ago. And I started to learn about how psychology departments around the world had been experimenting with VR for decades, understanding how it can help manage pain, for example, or reduce anxiety. And so I became curious about that and started to learn more about what are the mechanisms by which that works. And we started to use it in the hospital just very simply at first to provide sort of relaxing environments for people who are suffering with pain in the hospital. For example, post-operative pain, you know, uh, abdominal pain, cancer pain, neurological pain, and um, putting them on a beach 
or in a relaxing forest and meditating. And we saw very quickly that it really helped people. And not only did it help while they were in the VR, but even after they took the headset off, there's a period where people felt very different about their body and their mind. And so we started to study this. We did some randomized control trials, found benefits. And we also found that it worked both for GI pain and you know, visceral pain and somatic pain. And since then, we've now got a number of NIH trials looking at various forms of pain and also have been using it now for irritable bowel syndrome. We could talk more about how it could be used for IBS. And I've really explored all the different ways we can use VR and tie it to biosensors and biofeedback and even use it to train people in gut-directed hypnotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, even, even using it now for obesity and eating disorders. There's over 10,000 studies now using VR uh, in medicine. And now the FDA even acknowledges this as a new branch of medicine that it calls medical extended reality or MXR. So that's really exciting is now there are companies actually going through FDA clearance for their VR uh, therapeutics or what we call VRX. I mean, that, that sounds incredible, to be honest. I mean, while you were talking there, I was thinking that um, it, this sounds kind of like a miniature vacation or, or an in-pocket vacation that you can take with you. You're in the hospital, usually anxiety exacerbates pain and experience of pain for patients. And the experience of being in a hospital, I mean, I can only imagine how, how horrible that is. I mean, we hate it as doctors, as patients, it's probably even much worse. And having the power to escape all that and be on a beach, like you were saying, can probably have incredible psychiatric and uh, psychological effects uh, for these patients, calming them down and, and, uh, and reducing uh, their pain and anxiety levels. That sounds incredible. And if you think about it, you know, we all live in virtual reality all the time. So what I mean by that is right now, you could imagine your last vacation in your head or imagine a lake that you've been to or a song that you like can play in your head. I can't hear that song. I can't see those vacation scenes. It's almost like you're insane, right? You're crazy. But no, you actually see those things. We have vivid lives within ourselves. But when you're in pain, when you're hospitalized, when you're vulnerable, when you're ill, it becomes harder to access that natural power that we have to imagine, to live in virtual worlds that allow us to escape the immediacy of a painful environment. And what VR does is it helps people regain that capacity to imagine when they need it the most. And that's one of the ways that it works, but it's not the only way. It's not only a vacation, as you put it, which is a good way of thinking about it. But for example, in IBS, a totally different use case. Here, for example, one of the ways that therapists work with IBS patients is they'll ask them to imagine a very stressful situation. For example, many IBS patients find it very stressful to be in a public restroom where people are waiting for them to get out of the stall they're late for some appointment and they just can't get off the toilet, right? It's very stressful. It's anxiety producing. It can cause pain, discomfort. So what therapists will do is they'll say, okay, just imagine you're in the bathroom. Imagine the scene as vividly as you can, right? And that sort of relies upon the Im imagination of the patient. But what we can do in VR is we can literally put somebody in the bathroom. I mean, you're there, you're in the bathroom. You can 
hear toilets flushing. You can see people's feet underneath the stall. You can hear the sink running. And you're sitting there looking around in a bathroom and it's like that is emotionally evocative. And now we say, okay, all right, now let's think about what is this making you feel like? What are the emotions you're experiencing? And right there on the bathroom door in front of you, it becomes a CBT grid. You start to identify your emotions. You identify what thoughts you're having and you work through how to restructure those thoughts so they're more adaptive. And while we're doing this, we can measure pupillary diameter. We can measure heart rate and heart rate variability. We can measure galvanic skin resistance as an indirect measure of stress, other measures of autonomic function, and actually identify how people can get better and better at working through these stressful experiences so that when they are in them in real life, that's where they can draw upon what they learned in virtual reality. The whole point of VR is not to substitute real realities, to make it easier and more effective you're living in in real reality so to speak yeah and if you think about it a patient with a vr headset at home can probably work on this stuff on his own i mean you don't have to actually be at the doctor's office in order to get a cognitive behavioral therapy session you can actually have those session or do it as homework uh, at home and i'm sure that that patients can can benefit from that from that experience Incredible. Yeah, I mean, what we always say is that, you know, people, our patients spend 99.99% of their lives far away from us, you know, not in a clinic. They're at home, they're at work, they're at the park, they're at senior centers, but they're not with us. So there's only so much we can do in the 15, 20 minutes we have with a patient. There's a lot we can do, but let's, let's not overstate our ability to impact somebody's overall life in those 15 minutes. If we're really going to engage our patients, we have to find ways to go beyond the four walls of the clinic or the endoscopy suite or the hospital to where people actually live, work, and play. So the idea is rather than always bringing patients to the clinic, let's bring the clinic to the patients. And so we've created one program called IBS VR, which is literally a clinic. It's virtual, of course, but there are hallways, there are treatment rooms, they're fantastical treatment rooms, but they are treatment rooms. And at home, people can explore this clinic. We can unlock rooms, allow people to do all sorts of different innovative sort of, um, as I said, fantastical ex therapeutic experiences at home. Hopefully then this can be supplemented by whatever medical therapies you know, we're providing. It sounds incredible. And it sounds like it sounds like something that I definitely want to start using very soon. But building on that, what are, in your opinion, the biggest hurdles that stand in the way of wildly implementing this technology at this time? And how do you expect these to kind of play out in the future? Well, it's an interesting time right now, because as of, you know, three, four years ago, very few people had even heard of virtual reality. And now most everyone has heard of it. They may have certain perspectives about it, like that's for gaming, that's a weird mind trick, or I don't know. But the FDA, as I said, now recognizes this as a new branch of medicine. It's moving quickly. And you may have heard at the time we're recording this yesterday, Facebook renamed itself Meta. And what does that mean? Why is that important? Um, separate from whatever PR opportunities that gives Facebook, Facebook is working on what's called the Metaverse. This will be the new internet. And there's 10,000 people in Europe right now, full-time programming the metaverse, which is going to be a VR, AR, 
um, uh, environment that will, in theory, replace the internet according to the vision of Facebook. Now, from a healthcare perspective, you know, we don't really want to get too close to Facebook, but the idea is that VR definitely is going to gain traction and is already gaining traction in our lives, whether we like it or not. Uh, and so the question is, how can we leverage the fact that VR headsets have been sold by the millions over the last two, three years? People have these headsets in their homes. Uh, how can we use them not just for gaming and entertainment, to, but to support relaxation and wellness, to educate, to provide cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, physical therapy, stroke rehabilitation. It's being used for dementia, for uh, schizophrenia, for PTSD, for obesity and anorexia. There's over 40 or 50 different uses of VR. So there are over 200 hospitals using VR in the United States and growing. We have a conference we put on every year at Cedars-Sinai in March called Virtual Medicine. And it's sold out every year. I mean, we actually had somebody scalping tickets outside the door of our academic conference, which is amazing to see. I took a picture of it and put it online. Um, there's a lot of interest in this. And so I think, you know, for particularly some of the younger doctors, um, this is an opportunity who are kind of digitally connected and have a digital mindset to get involved and learn how to use these technologies. Now, insurance companies are not yet fully paying for them. And you asked about barriers. That's one of them. Um, but insurance companies are looking at it very closely. In fact, they funded some of our research. And I think we're going to start seeing more insurance coverage soon, maybe over the next year or so. But we'll find out and see how, how it progresses. Wow, that sounds incredible within a year. I mean, that really incredible. Yeah, don't hold me to it. I hope so. But that's, <laughs> that's what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like basically what we need is, is to get more people involved and more people talking about this. Coming to that point, where do you think is the best place for uh, physicians interested in this to learn more about it? to become involved if possible. Yeah. Well, for starters, I, I wrote a book, um, I guess a little shameless self-promotion, but it came out last year. It's a wide release book. And actually Wired Magazine called it one of the top eight science books of 2020, which I didn't expect uh, to hear, which was very exciting that there's a recognition of VR. It's called VRX. Yeah. And uh, it's how, um, you know, I'm sorry, it's, it's how virtual therapeutics will revolutionize medicine. That's the subtitle. And, you know, it's really about, about human consciousness. It's about how does the mind and body connect? And of course, in GI, we're wor worried about the brain gut axis. It's what does VR teach us about our consciousness, about mind-body medicine, about the edges of modern neuroscience, about the intersection between technology, psychology, even philosophy of mind, uh, clinical medicine, digital health. And so really that's what the book is about. And it goes through many stories of how we and others around the world are using VR for all sorts of applications, including GI uses. And it's very much a narrative. It has hundreds of references, but I think the best way to get involved is to see it. You just have to see it and experience it. Otherwise this is a theoretical conversation until you see somebody using it. So we have for that reason posted a number of videos of patients using virtual reality on our website. So we have a website, it's virtualmedicine.org. And on that website, it's a comprehensive website that covers this whole field. And there are patient videos you can watch and just see firsthand how patients react and respond and learn more about the different types of research. 
and to attend conferences like virtual medicine. So we have many clinicians who come who want to try and demo the, the, the software. So we have a whole bunch of demo opportunities, workshops to learn how to use the software, how other doctors are using it, uh, and to learn from the world's experts. And so that's, uh, if you go to virtualmedicine.org, you can learn more about that conference, which will be next March in Los Angeles. That's amazing. And I think uh, the book is available on Amazon, if I'm, if I'm yes. not mistaken. Mm -hmm. All right. Anywhere books are sold, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. we'll, we'll add the link of that, um, the book, as well as um, the website and, uh, and hopefully the meeting uh, at the description with the podcast. So I think enough about VR. Um, let's talk a little bit about AppStats. I, I actually found about it recently. It's, you developed it, you published about it since maybe 2013. Um, and it's been out there for a while. Um, I found about it very recently, and I, to be honest, I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you about this. I feel mm -hmm. like it's it's really an amazing thing. Um, and seeing you, you know, talking in that video about how in GI the only non-invasive way that we have to kind of monitor anything is um, is a stethoscope, and it's been developed in the 1800s, um, and it's really really embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, for us as a community that we have not really developed further than that. And I think, you know, AppSats is, is a fantastic thing and a, and a fantastic start. So in a nutshell, tell us about AppSat, what it is, uh, what it does. Well, yeah, you're right. You know, of course, we have many ways to interrogate the bowels beyond the stethoscope, right? And I know you know that, you know, everything from endoscopy and CT scans and pills and manometries and so on and so forth. But all of those, for the most part, are moment and time evaluations, right? So you're going to, and they're, they're generally invasive. Obviously, we can do a CT scan or barium study, but that's a moment in time. You know, the stethoscope gives you dynamic information for as long as you can bear to hold it to somebody's abdomen, uh, which isn't very long. So we really don't have a lot, we don't have sort of telemetry for the gut, the way uh, cardiologists have developed um, remote telemetry with sensors that, you know, like a Zio, a Zio patch that goes right on the chest, for example, and monitors people uh, for, for, you know, days and weeks even. So that was the rationale behind Abstats. And so when I was thinking about this, this was all the way back in around 2010. I mean, it's over a decade ago that I thought, you know what, um, the bowels make sounds, um, microphones detect sounds, uh, we're getting better at signal search engines, and why don't we train a computer to listen for bowel sounds. When it hears a bowel sound, it just counts it. And then it counts the number of bowel sounds, um, small intestinal, for the most part, bowel sounds per minute. And that becomes a new vital sign, the intestinal rate. We have heart rate, we have respiratory rate, but the intestinal rate is how many bowel sounds per minute does the sensor detect. And it just sits on the abdominal wall, sticks there. Uh, and really, it's just a, a, a microphone, but the computer, the hardware does the hard work. So we worked with... Uh, engineering team at UCLA, and they developed the software. We then validated it in a few papers, um, mainly looking at post-operative ileus as our first you know, uh, use case. And the goal there was, can it predict you know, who's gonna have ileus and who's gonna have a prolonged hospital stay? And the answer was, yeah, pretty accurately, if we measure bowel sounds right out of the OR and continuously measure them, there are certain trajectories um, that the computer can detect, even with a bedside monitor, that will predict if somebody's, you know, going to be going to have ileus or not, which can help you decide how quickly to feed somebody safely. Of course, there's all this um, 
you know, rapid, you know, uh, feeding protocols that the surgeons use now, but sometimes we push too hard and people get sick and so on. But also outside of surgery, we've also published a paper showing that we can measure how much food you ate. Uh, so the more you eat, the more signals your belly makes, which kind of makes sense. So it's kind of like a Fitbit for the gut, whereas with a Fitbit, you want to maximize your signals. You want to walk as much as possible. Let's say you're trying to lose weight, you may want to minimize your signals, meaning you kind of don't have as much digestive activity. And, you know, so then you can think about whether you're in sort of a signal like a red zone, yellow zone or green zone. So you may be really hungry and want to eat, but the sensor tells you, you know what, you're still digesting your last meal like literally still digesting it. You are not physiologically ready for another meal. Your brain may want to eat, you know, <laughs> your psyche may want to eat, but your gut's literally not ready to eat yet. And so it's a way to sort of regain um, communication with your interoceptive ability with your own gut, which is part of the problem with eating disorders is interoception is disrupted and you no longer have that connection with your own body. And so the cerebral cortex kind of takes over. So, you know, these are some uses for abstats. Yeah, and I, I love the analogy that, that you made. It's like a Fitbit for the gut because, you know, that's what we use Fitbit for. Fitbit can tell you, for example, you've been sitting for too long, stand up, or you, you haven't been mm -hmm. active for too long, go do something active. And this is uh, pretty much the same thing is that you are eating too much, maybe take a break. All right. So um, All right. really, really uh, incredible. So, and... You know, I've done a bit of research and, and there's been a lot of work about acoustic monitoring uh, for the gut in general. So mm -hmm. it, based on your experience on a timeline of development of uh, acoustic monitoring for the gut um, and that technology, where do you think we are right now and, mm -hmm. and how close are we to something that can be used uh, functionally and widely? Oh, very close. So. You know, acoustic sensing has gone back, you know, even to the 1990s. Uh, there was work in Japan, as I recall. But I think what we've gotten better at is the computer. It's not so much. It's really the the, the machine learning uh, and, and essentially artificial intelligence, you know, that can you feed in clinical data and the computer can kind of tell you, like, what is the acoustic signature, let's say, of irritable bowel syndrome or celiac disease. I mean, we, that work hasn't really been done yet, but you, once you start to wonder how accurately can a acoustic monitor actually detect if you have celiac? Just for example, what if you give somebody a gluten-free diet and there's a normal response acoustic and then there's a celiac response? Um, can a sensor detect that? So you start to imagine all the different ways sensing can be used in clinical practice. We actually do have a patent. So we got a patent for the acoustic sensing way back when, and it was cleared by the FDA, this sensor. This sensor has been FDA cleared since uh, 2015. So that's sort of a whole separate discussion about, you know, just because something gets FDA cleared doesn't mean everyone's using it. You know, that's that has to do more with business opportunities and how our uh, startup companies formed and stuff I'm obviously not great at because uh, you still, most people haven't heard of AppStats. So, um, you know, it is licensed and there is a startup and they're working on, you know, exploring ways to use it. But, you know, if you talk to clinicians like ourselves, it can come up with all sorts of opportunities. Um, but that doesn't always translate immediately into business. So there's obviously a whole other art to, to this, but the scientific opportunities and the clinical opportunities are, are really uh, expansive. That's awesome. And, and this actually brings us to my next question. 
what has been your experience coming up with an idea for a new device and then working on it? You know, working in an endoscopy suite every day in different hospitals, not just here in San Antonio, but um, all over the country. Um, I've seen people come up with ideas that in my head, I'm thinking, this is incredible. This is a fantastic idea. Um, but then nobody does anything about it. Um, most, mm -hmm. most great ideas, I think, die there and then um, in the same place that they're born. Um, they're just mm -hmm. no born. And one of the reasons I feel like is because people don't know where to go from there. Um, mm -hmm. So it'll be super helpful if you can kind of tell us your experience about how, how has it been and, and uh, what was it like? Yeah, well, you know, there's a saying that ideas are cheap. <laughs> uh, right. That, that, ideas are cheap. Anyone come up with them. Although that's not totally true, of course. I mean, there's a certain level, honestly, of creativity, I think, that may be required to come up with you know, true breakthrough innovations. And But the problem is that skill set of being creative and developing outstanding ideas is a very different skill set than getting that to market. Okay, mm -hmm. so that's a different set of skills. And sometimes doctors think they can sort of do everything and, you know, you know, we think we're real smart. We passed medical school. We can do lots of complicated things. But what we do has nothing to do with actual business development. So the idea is, well, when you have the idea, uh, it, it helps if you're in an environment where there's a technology transfer group. And I'm very fortunate at Cedars-Sinai, which wasn't always the case in previous institutions where I've been. We have an excellent tech transfer team. And that's in their entire business. That's what they do. They take the idea that some faculty member has and they say, all right, here's what we've got to do to get it to market. Here are the steps to fund it, to find business partners. And then finding the right business partners becomes the most important thing by far. The most important thing is finding the people that really believe in your idea and have the experience to bring ideas like that to market. And often they're few and far between. And the success or failure of a great idea will ultimately depend on how well that process unfolds. You could think it's the best idea in the world, and it may actually be. But if you've ever watched Shark Tank, you know, the idea is like the first tiny bit of the presentation. They're like, all right, great. I got your idea. Now tell me about the business model. Now tell me about your competitors. Now tell, you, tell me about what custom, you know, customer research you've done that anyone's going to actually use this in real life. That's the hard stuff that people go to business school for. So you have to work with people like that very early or else it could be extremely frustrating just you know, shouting from the rooftops, getting people to read your poster at ACG or something like that. I mean, that's the very first step to making a difference. Yeah, that sounds amazing, to be honest, because it, it actually, I think a lot of people may have institutions already in place uh, where they work, like you said, um, an innovation um, department or something like that, where they can actually go and get hooked up with engineers, um, uh, business people, um, and all that that can help mm -hmm. them out. Uh, and they don't really know about it. So I guess the first step is find out what you have available. And the second step is find the right people um, that will help you um, and then kind of go from there. The other thing I'd say is if you do have a great idea, which a lot of people do, right? Um, you know, first of all, be careful who you tell. Okay, I think that's that's something I learned because I just want to tell everyone as soon as I have a new idea. But go straight. If you have a great idea, um, be careful who you tell because the more people you tell, first of all, the more legally complicated it can become. 
because other people will say they developed that idea with you. Yeah. And now it becomes difficult to untangle whose idea it is. So when you generate a new idea, I think the first thing to do is go right to your technology transfer group. And you say, I have an idea. How do I protect this idea right now is nascent as it is. And typically there's something called an invention report where you will write down what it is you thought of. You will write down the date that you thought of it. You have to write down who you've told, if anybody, and explain the idea as well as you can. And now it's on file with their technology transfer. And now they can assess it, determine if it's any good, and decide who else they should now bring in to help you develop it. But if you go kind of lone ranger and start telling everybody and coming up with ideas, and it becomes very hard to maintain control of that idea. So I would suggest you go straight to your tech transfer team, get their advice before you go uh, telling everyone else about it. <laughs> so that's great. And that kind of touches upon um, the next thing is, you know, in your experience, what are the biggest obstacles in the, in the way of physicians to kind of develop the, the ideas that they have or go on, um, you know, a, a pathway of innovation or entrepreneurship um, within their... Yeah. Well, you know... Um... Not everyone is perfectly equipped for this. I think everyone has different personalities and interests and so forth. And, you know, anyone that's taken psychology knows that there's sort of the big five personality traits, you know, openness, um, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Those are the five. And so there's a certain personality type that is highly creative and they're very, very open, meaning open to new ideas. Um, can think diametrically. So you may hear some, a set of facts and think about those facts in a way no one else has, or very, very few can. And that is to some degree, I think biologically determined to some degree, but I do think to some degree creativity can be learned. There are some principles of design thinking that you can study in school or read books about to maximize your intrinsic ability to be creative. Um, now, uh, you also need to be very conscientious, which means there's two parts to conscientiousness. There's industriousness uh, and there's orderliness. So you need to be industrious, meaning really gritty, and you're going to see things through. A lot of people have an idea. It's like a flash in the pan, and then they have another idea and another idea, and they're great at ideas, and they're chasing things around like little, you know, like, uh, little toys. Uh, like a kid just with a toddler running after shiny objects. You have to focus on the idea that you really want to exploit. And that comes from industriousness, is seeing it through and being orderly in how you go through those steps without becoming chaotic. Uh, so those are the two most important things. Being extroverted helps too, because now you can communicate your ideas in an effective way to people who are stakeholders. Um, and, you know, you have to be relatively agreeable, uh, but at the same time, you need to be willing and you need to be able to take criticism, too. But the thing I'm saying here is there is a personality type that I think supports this, but it's a very different personality than the people you need to see that through to completion. Those people do not need to be particularly open to new ideas. In fact, you kind of don't want them to be off-roading too much. There is a script that you learn in a business school you have to, be, to get things to market. You don't want them to be too creative, okay? I mean, you want them to be orderly, conscientious, um, you know, agreeable, uh, emotionally stable, and to be able to get your, but that's different from being conscientious 
in the sense of um, uh, of creativity. So anyway, I can talk for a while about this, but the point is that there are different strokes for different folks. And, you know, coming up with the ideas, that's why I see ideas are cheap. Uh, it's really in the end, innovation is 90% perspiration, 10% inspiration. And some people get that reverse. They just sort of think it's 90% inspiration and 10% perspiration. You're not going to get very far with that attitude. You just have to work your ass off if you really want your ideas to get anywhere. Unfortunately, it doesn't, it doesn't just pop out at like, you know, Elon Musk didn't just walk into Tesla. He did a lot to get there and to build that company. And that's that's a brilliant way to put it, to be honest. I completely agree with you. I, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts about physician interaction with the industry. You know, the, the, the old adage is be aware and, and be very weary of the industry. Conflict of interest is something that kind of hangs over everybody's head. Whenever I find myself talking to somebody from the industry, I'm always, there's a voice in the back of my head that's saying, is this kosher? Am I supposed to be doing this? Is this right? Is this wrong? And I feel like it may make it difficult for physicians to kind of develop the right relationships with the industry that could help them develop things that can help us in our practice. Um, so if you think about everything that we use every day to treat patients from endoscopes to um, computer programs to VR to everything else, it's all developed by the industry. So these are our partners, but we find ourselves um, in a very difficult situation when trying to interact with them. And I wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on that and, and what is the best way to interact with the industry in our business? Well, you're right that our industry are partners uh, and we should find ways to leverage that partnership. Ultimately, of course, our responsibility, our fiduciary responsibility is to our patients uh, and to the practice of medicine. So, you know, the easy answer is we should always be thinking about what's best for our patients above all. Um, now, that doesn't mean that doctors shouldn't be able to benefit from their skills, financially benefit from their skills and knowledge and curiosity and creativity. Um, and I think sometimes the pendulum swings far too much in the, in the direction away from that, where doctors feel guilty for leveraging their creativity and skill, um, both for their patients, but at the same time, you know, profiting. Uh, profiting. So it can be very difficult. I think in the end, transparency above all is vital. Um, you should be trans. This is the idea of the Sunshine Act. I'm fine with the Sunshine Act. I'm fine with people knowing what I'm working on. Uh, there's nothing to hide from. For me, though, as somebody that works in virtual reality, in that instance, I actually am very careful, very particularly careful. Uh, I just don't take money from VR companies. Uh, I think the only time I ever took anything was like $1,500 in 2015 um, for some sort of an advisory panel. And after that time, I said, you know what? I'm getting more and more involved in this. I think I'm just going to stop completely taking any money from it because I don't want, I feel like we're really onto something and I don't want anyone to ever say, you know what? You're doing this just because you're personally profiting from it. Uh, we get research grants from the federal government. Um, we have NIH grants. We get other kinds of research grants. But I, in that case, have decided... I don't want to have that conflict. Um, I have received advisory money from in, you know, pharmaceutical companies, and that's why I have to disclose it anytime I give a talk at, at a meeting. 
Uh, and I think a lot of people in, in medicine do that. But we also really play a very important role in contributing to new drug development, developing ideas about how best to um, get you know, um, products and services to patients in a responsible way. There's a very fine line in there, and there's no easy answers sometimes to these tough questions. But ultimately, what matters most are the patients, um, our professional responsibility to them, uh, and ultimately um, our own professionalism and how we're perceived. Uh, I think if you go too far, you can lose authority. And so that's where I think it can be very tricky uh, for those of us and others like us who are kind of involved with industry in different ways. I don't know if that's helpful or just sort of complicates things, but that's how I think about it. No, I think it's, like you said, I agree. It's a fine line and, and you have to tread very, very carefully and kind of work in that relationship um, in a way that, as you said, serves our patients first, uh, because that's ultimately what we do is, is mm -hmm. uh, serve our patients. Um, so just a general question, you know, based on kind of the discussion that we've had so far, say that you woke up tomorrow and you found yourself a, a few years back to the days when you were a resident or a fellow, what would you do differently? Hmm. Um, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we all learn over time. Um, you know, we learn about ourselves, we learn about our interactions. You know, I think back sometimes to when I was a fellow and was probably kind of a smart aleck every so, you know, like, for example, we've all gotten that call at three in the morning from, you know, a resident, let's say, uh, for the, you know, for GI fellows, for example, that says, you know, I've got a GI bleeder and the hemoglobin is six. I said, all right, that's great. But, you know, what's the blood pressure? I don't know. What's the rectal exam show? I don't know. You know, I just told to call you. And it's very easy to get frustrated at those moments. And I certainly think about how, you know, I was probably not, I was probably kind of grumpy uh, in how I interacted on some phone calls back then, as an example. Um, and I think, you know what, though, I wish I had the perspective then that this is a future colleague I'm talking to. You know, this is not just some resident. This person's going to be my colleague uh, soon enough. And um, ultimately, they're calling on behalf of their patient, right? So I really shouldn't have an attitude that I'm being bothered and being awakened at three in the morning. So, you know, I think about that with my own fellows now. And, I, and I'm, I, I'm honest about that. I'll tell those kinds of stories. Like when they're getting frustrated, I'll say, I totally hear you. I was like that too. Um, but, you know, um, you got to dig deep <laughs> and just... Say yes. Okay, I'll be there as soon as I can get there. And in the end, that's that's a much more uh, effective way to be a doctor. Um, so, I mean, I've learned that, of course, over time. And I think some people never learn that. Some people know it from birth, and some people kind of figure it out over time. And maybe I'm in the middle group. Yeah, and I, and I think that works. You know, for everything, you know, you never burn a bridge. Because like you said, these are the people that are going to be in your field. These are the people that you're going to be interacting with over the years. And I always remember the story of, of a resident who once called me. It was July. He was uh, somebody who just started out of medical school. And he's just right. freaking out over the phone saying, please help me. Please help me. And he yeah. couldn't even tell me the story. And I just had to go to the hospital and find out what was going on. <laughs> because he was just psychologically stressed um, to a point in which he couldn't really communicate. 
Um, and I, I think that's, that's really um, great advice. So I think I've taken too, too much of your time so far. Um, but uh, what is, do you think, the best place for us to learn about app stats, like a website or um, papers or something like that? Yeah, I think the best is to look at some of the papers we've published. Um, I think you mentioned GI Logic earlier. That's a company that licensed actually years ago the, the IP from UCLA, the intellectual property, and has been sort of developing business models and so forth. But I think the, you know, what I'm a scientist, so it's the peer-reviewed papers that I care most about. Um, and you can look up online um, some of our papers. We just cross my last name, Spiegel, you know, B. And uh, if you type in the word acoustic into PubMed with my name, you'll probably find a few papers on Abstat. So that's a good place to look. Yeah, and we'll add the links for, for those uh, papers uh, to the podcast description. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so... Dr. Spiegel, thank you so much uh, for uh, being with us today. Um, had a great time uh, chatting with you, and uh, hopefully maybe we'll have you uh, later in the future as well. Thanks for having me. Good luck. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us the good old five-star rating and share this episode with your colleagues. It'll really help us out in creating additional content. See you all next time.